0: Hello, this is Dr. Susan Kleiner on behalf of Paul Nobles and Eat to Perform. We are doing our sort of regular three-month interesting topic podcast today, and we are very excited to have uh, joining us three experts in the field of coaching, nutrition, food, athletic performance, those all go together. And so, you'll get to hear all of us today, and it's going to be a fun conversation. Professionals working with athletes are well aware, or should be aware, of the conflicts that many athletes face with nutritional needs relative to athletic performance. While it seems like it should be straightforward, and many athletes believe it's straightforward as well as coaches that an athlete needs to eat a full, wholesome diet and fully fuel themselves for their training, competition and recovery, it's not necessarily a straight line between diet and performance. Many of you have probably and likely experienced that. Body weight and composition impact performance in most sports. In sports that require a weight class, In endurance sports where weight to power ratios matter and when the aesthetic ideal body image impacts sport judging, athletes may go against well-known diet principles to achieve what they believe will advance or enhance their performance. So, you know, talking about athletes' food in their bodies even overlaps with the average individual trying to sculpt their bodies or change the way they feel in their body. These ideas are baked into many of the training and diet formulas promoted by coaches, trainers, alumni athlete mentors, and the media. Added to the pressures to perform and the coaching that athletes receive are the athletes own attachment to body image that can be driven by personal emotions and marketplace demands that have nothing to do with successful performance. We have been reading, you may have been reading some of the recent articles that have had very high profile viewing of personal stories of young elite female runners succumbing to the weight loss focus and demands of coaches that have brought the issue to the headlines. It is a story that can impact athletes of all ages at all levels of sport and is particularly problematic among female athletes although it is well known, especially among um, the experts that we have today, that this can impact male athletes as well, but young female athletes are at particular risk and we hope that these young women and their parents can um, hear some of our message today. We've come quite a long way in behavioral diet research in gaining appreciation for a better way to approach training and diet concepts and conversations with athletes. Yet few professionals working with athletes seem to be aware of them. These concepts actually apply to everyone who struggles with body weight issues, all of you out there listening. But today we are focusing on athletes and active individuals. It is essential that athletes' parents, coaches, and dietitians begin to participate in changing their understanding of the approach to an athlete's body. This podcast is a beginning of that conversation. So today we have these three amazing experts joining us, Keenan Robinson, Kara Bazzi, Monica Van Winkle, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves to you because it's so much better than in their voices than in mine. So they will introduce themselves to you, and then we will begin our conversation. I'm going to introduce to you Kenan Robinson.
1: Hey, Dr. Kleiner, uh, thank you very much for allowing me to kind of get on this conversation. Uh, I'll have to preface, expert I am not. If, if by means of someone that really enjoys using his smoker and meats, then, then, then I will be maybe close to expert, <laughs> but uh, the, the other three, uh, three of you can handle the, the expert side of, of sports diet dietitian. But um, by way of introduction, my name is Kenan Robinson. I'm the director of sports medicine and science for USA Swimming. My educational background would be a certified athletic trainer by the NATA BOC and a certified strength and conditioning coach. Um, And for the last 16 years of my professional career, I've been uh, immersed in the the world of swimming with everything from 10-year-olds all the way up to uh, athletes that have exhausted their NCAA eligibility and continue to to swim and um, try and get to the Olympic Games, uh, and so I think the the reason why I, I'm I'm really excited to hear what what the panel of experts are going to talk about is the the opportunity that I've had to to watch the evolution of an athlete, uh, and in particular, right, the female athlete now now kind of hits home. I have a five-year-old daughter. Um, and so uh, you, you see the evolution of them first getting involved in sport and particularly the sport of swimming with a passion and enjoyment of just being part of a team and um, and that's what sport is supposed to be and and uh, trying to have a, a lifestyle of just health and fitness whenever their organized athletic career ends um, I know I know two of the three of you guys are in Seattle right one of the fittest like uh, uh, active cities in, in, in the United States. And, and that's what we kind of hope that, that all athletes, when they start in organized sports, they can continue to do. And then by genetic traits and hard work, they start to reach some level of uh, societal standard of, of good and great. And, and then the, the topics of making international teams or breaking state records or winning high school state championships and then the the – uh, endless pursuit of college scholarships and um and fame and recognition on, on the international level starts to, to to weave itself into to sport and uh particularly from what i've observed and i think that's why we're, we're discussing it then the thing that gets lost is is um these 10 year olds these 11 year olds these 12 year olds they start to grow it start to become growing into to young <clears throat> excuse me young women and and things change and and i think unfortunately in the united states unlike our our friends in australia and europe like we just don't talk about why these changes are occurring and why they may be impacting the female athlete and so times start to get slower and in a in a world of instant gratification like we we got to we got to fix this immediately like we can't just kind of go back to the drawing board and know that it'll it'll eventually work itself out if we if we bring in experts and then then they get to the college level and the the critical eyes become greater right like their their body image their performances Uh, they're now on on campus where not only are they comparing themselves to their teammates and how they look perhaps in the bathing suit but also what their fellow classmates the general population what they look like um, and I could just only imagine the psychological impact that that has on them. And obviously I've, I've heard it firsthand from, from some of the athletes that I've worked with. And, um, so I just think in cl- like for my part in closing, I just want to, to get a conversation where one, um, hopefully those that view this can start to say, like, we mm-hmm. have these conversations in a positive, um, forward manner where we're, we're trying to help instead of, um, cover it up or, or make it even more awkward to discuss some of these things. Uh, and number two is just just again like if we can impact just one young uh young child young female's life and their parents and their coaches for positive manner then we've done our job so i've babbled on enough now let's let the experts discuss
0: (laughs) thank you so much keenan and i just have to say that um keenan uh and i met um really professionally when keenan reached out when he had uh, a female athlete who was struggling with her nutrition in a very negative way and, and it was, I mean, that just to me was the epitome of, of coaching, of being able to recognize what was happening with an athlete whose performance was going down the tubes, um, evaluating her emotional state as well as what she was practically doing. Uh, likely with her diet and then reaching out to another professional and, and all of that together has always given me the greatest respect for you, Keenan. And, um, and so, and your insights into how you, how you, um, got there and your comfort level of, um, of of your practice in, in coaching that way, I think is, is important. Um, okay. So on to Kara.
2: Hi. Um, Okay. So I, on this panel, I'm representing the mental health side. I professionally am a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I am the clinical director and co-founder of Opal Food and Body Wisdom, which is an eating disorder clinic in Seattle. So we're higher level of care. We offer, it's called partial hospitalization, which is a 50 hour week program. It's one step down from residential. And then we do the lower levels of care from there, including outpatient. And we're one of only a handful of uh, programs in the country that focus on treatment of athletes and really work on people's relationship to exercise and sport and movement. Um, and that the reason that that's one of our specialties comes from my own personal experience. And so personally, I was a former collegiate athlete at the University of Washington. I was a distance runner um, and ran cross country and track. My husband also ran at University of Washington And so a lot of these recent podcasts that have come out are actually athletes that I used to race against in college, which has been really, um, incredible to listen to some of the stuff that they're putting out there. Um, and so, yeah, so personally, um, I was a runner, I developed my own eating disorder in the context of sport. And so in my healing journey my recovery journey, um, it was really important to me to focus my, um, interest in and help those um, that are like me as athletes that were suffering from eating disorders. Um, And so I've worked a lot on the treatment side, but also on the prevention side, and that's also really important to me. Um, I have two girls. I have a 10 year old and an about to be 13 year old who have both started um, the sport of cross country and amongst other sports. And I have a lot of, um, I was nodding a lot when Keenan was talking about um, how kids enter into sport for, a lot of cool, awesome, variety of reasons, including passion and connection, um, and then seeing when the competitive aspect gets brought into their relationship with sport. Sort of what starts to um, what starts to happen and shift, and and I and so I am really um, also passionate about educating and developing coaches, and you know even PE. Um, teachers at schools and people that are working with young athletes, how to help keep these really important aspects of their relationship to sport and movement um, so that they can be lifelong in, in their joy with, with movement. So I think that's also, I guess the other little piece that relates to this is my husband, since we graduated from UW, he's also been coaching and he's coached distance running um, for gosh, 20 years. Um, so, and I've also started doing a little bit of coaching too. So, I I, I have a lot of the hats um, and seeing this issue from different angles.
0: Ah, fabulous. So, we have the mental health professional and athlete in one yeah. package. So, uh, with a very personal experience in this, this is this is wonderful. Uh, and finally, last but hardly least is Monica Van Wiegel.
3: Hi, Susan. <laughs> So, i'm a registered dietitian i've been a registered dietitian for 14 years and i own a company such as private nutrition clinic in seattle called nutrition in action and i work with athletes in my company and i also work with with people who don't consider themselves athletes but who are active and people who are not active and people who are recovering from eating disorders i work with all ages um The youngest I've worked with is six for someone with an eating disorder and the oldest I've worked with um just the oldest client I've worked with is in their 80s so all across the board and I um the reason this topic why I became a dietitian actually is because my closest childhood friend growing up she was the first person I knew with anorexia I really didn't hadn't encountered eating disorders when I was in high school, but when she was 14, she became anorexic. She actually at one point was the fastest 100 meter runner in our state. And she never ran again after after high school. And at, at one point we were also told that she might not live. She went to the ICU twice throughout her treatment. And so as I watched her recover, she's recovered now, so that's the good news. But after I watched her go through what she went through, she had always said that she never connected with any of the dietitians that she had. And so I thought, well, that's a good way to combine my interest in science and also helping people. So here I am, that's what I'm doing now. And the more I worked with people in general who had had eating disorders, the more I started meeting athletes who had had eating disorders. And I think we know the the statistics are even higher and athletes who struggle with eating disorders so um it's just a a combination that has has worked out but um i think i also work and consult with a couple sports teams in seattle so since i've been back i went to grad school in boston at boston university and then um i did a fellowship in it's the leah fellowship it's leadership and education in adolescent health and that was where I got the majority of my eating disorder education and then also obviously working with adolescents that was at um Boston Children's Hospital and then I worked as a clinical dietitian so I have a strong clinical foundation which I think is really important for 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 any dietitian to have um even when we treat eating disorders and working in sports nutrition I think Susan would agree and um and then I helped uh, create a residential program for eating disorders in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That was the Cambridge Eating Disorder Center. So I ran that and then moved back to Seattle and ended up working with a lot of the sports teams here. So um, I've worked with, at some capacity, University of Washington, um, Seattle Pacific, Seattle University, and I'm currently the sports dietitian for the Seattle Mariners. So. I mean, there's one other thing I wanted to say. I don't know if we would get lucky enough that this could ever reach Mary Kane, but I just, um, it's so, it shouldn't be this way where when there's a power differential that the person who is being abused or experiencing some of the things that she said she experienced, where they have to be the ones to speak up. But if this ever reached her, I just want to thank her for how brave that she has been because this has opened up such, I've been waiting for a moment like this for years because sadly it, 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 it seems it has to be the athletes who do speak up for change to happen. And I just want her to know that I see her, I hear you, Mary, if somehow you hear this and I will continue to do everything I can so that we can all be more educated and do a better job and, and prevent one more person from going through what she's been through so
2: i echo that
0: yes i think i think that's a, a unanimous uh consent on that i uh, thank you so much for including that monica it it has been the impetus to a lot of conversation and even amongst the the moms that i know and the the younger moms of younger kids that i know reaching back out and saying wow how can i know if my daughter is at risk i think she's okay but she's a runner right so all of a sudden all of these antenna are going up and it's invaluable um so again uh i think we second third and fourth that um so to to dive in and i i do want to sort of just make the point that this is there's such a range here of people who are who we could describe as the this very ill, sad story of Monica's friend from high school. All the way to the young person who you think is doing just fine. There's no outward signs. Everything seems fine. But then you get some recognition that this athlete was or, or young person was under-fueled and you didn't even know it. So even I have a personal story on that. And then I'm going to launch in because I think it's so relevant. So I have a, I also have two daughters. They are now 27 and 23, both highly active. And my older daughter was a rower and rowing here in Seattle is a huge sport. And she started also very excited and passionate when they could begin rowing between seventh and eighth grade or between sixth and seventh grade. I can't even remember. And we turn out a lot of Olympic rowers, and so while they are still in the in sort of the junior varsity uh, training, they it, it is just fun, and it's mm-hmm. a lot of fun. And then they do get mm-hmm. into the a, a serious competition early on in high school to get into the lead boats, et cetera. And she was naturally a lightweight rower, and so there is a weight restriction to to maintain your lightweight rowing status she she my daughter i'm a sports nutritionist she seemed to be eating plenty but there were many 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 hours in her afternoon where she didn't eat at all so if she was eating after lunch and started to row at 3:45 or start the warm up for rowing at 3:45 in the afternoon she'd be puking over the side of the boat she just could not consume anything even a sports drink Went off the side of the boat, and so she could, she would hydrate with water, but nothing else. And yet, she would eat robustly all morning, come home, and it would be eight, nine o'clock by the at night by the time she was shower changed and could sit down to eat. She'd eat a robust dinner. Her weight didn't, she maintained her body weight at the top of the, the lightweight rowing her entire high school career. When she went to college, and she performed well. When she went to college and stopped rowing, she, and I, I did so only for fun, again, she grew almost two inches.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and we thought she was done growing. And so that immediately said to me, that was pretty late in life to have a growth spurt. We were just lucky that her bones hadn't fused and she didn't grow. She clearly was underfueled because she could perform her sport, which we all now know the body fuels the highest intensity demand first. And then the sort of fundamental foundational health needs will go underfueled. And so even though reproductive systems seemed fine, she didn't grow through high school or the last few years. And then when she stopped exercising and was eating more, she grew. So even that was a sign of a child who wasn't restricting, but just didn't have enough time to eat enough all day long. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a huge range in this conversation. So we're going to, but we're going to dive right into um, a somewhat of disordered eating. So that was, you know, when we talk about disordered eating, um, abnormal eating behaviors, sometimes they are unintentional, as was my daughter's. It's just lack of information or understanding all the way to um, a true mental health issue. And so Kara, I want to start with you. Why do you think disordered eating habits are still an issue in sports when we really have been talking about them for nearly my entire career, which is 35 years? And what areas do we need to get better at to try and get the information out. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I still think there's a a very big gap of information and knowledge when it comes to disordered eating and sport. Um, I mean, one of the things that even with the more information coming out after Mary Keane's disclosure, I think I'm really excited to see that the relative energy deficiency and sport information is getting put out there because I think we're quite limited with even the female athlete triad Um, and because of the bias of towards female athletes and it not being inclusive of athletes of other genders. Um, So again, there's just, I think, a lack of information. Um, I also think within the athlete population, um, a lot of things are quote unquote normative and it's really hard. We talk about um, the challenge identification issue challenges where um, it's really hard to detect, both for an athlete. So like, for, for in my personal history, I mean, looking back, I had an eating disorder for four years. And I didn't know I had an eating disorder for four years. <laughs> I, um, I didn't, I wasn't able to even see it for what it was until I was a senior, even though I started the disorder behaviors my freshman year, because one, it was normalized, it was very much reflected in the rest of my teammates, how I was eating. Um, and there was kind of no concern or no challenge by anybody in authority. And, and so that wasn't getting reflected back that anything was um, abnormal. And, and, then, um, and then of course, like at that time, and I think this still can occur, there wasn't a, a much cause for concern about my, lacking, my lack of menstruation. Um, both my PCP and the um, sports physician, um, no, no one expressed concern about me not having my period. Um, they said it was normal because of my level of training um, and then just put me on birth control. So I think, again, it wasn't being reflected in any um, leadership who I was putting trust into. Um, and and I think a lot of that still occurs. I mean, I, I think we've grown in, in that knowledge and there are um, institutions and systems that have uh, been more educated and have less tolerance and kind of boundaries around that. But there's, it's still, I think it's still happening. So I think there's also a lot of fear of coming out um, as an athlete with having disordered behaviors of, about what, what might occur um, and whether they can still participate in their sport or if there's going to be any ramifications, if they're on it about um, maybe struggling or being confused about their relationship with food or their body Um, it's just not, it's, it's not like common. There's a lot of fear around talking about it, I think.
0: So to the group, there's, you know, um, I've worked with, um, a few elite runners. And of course, when I identify eating disorders, I send them to Monica. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but I worked with, uh, over the years, the role of sort of the healthy young girl leaving high school, going to college, being in a dorm, um, and being surrounded by a group of girls who are runners or other athletes where body weight and body image, you know, is bad enough when you're not in athletics and you get into that situation, but the social pressure. So this thing, this one athlete was not a runner and mm-hmm. she ended up in a dorm room, like a suite with three girls who were runners. Mm-hmm. And she thought, well, how much fun I'm going to, start to run with them well she ended up being the elite runner of the pack and um and so she started running then they didn't eat much and and they said to her well if you eat a little less you'll probably get a little faster and then she recognized that her she lost some body weight she kind of liked that she kind of slid into Mm -hmm. an eating disorder completely unaware of what was happening and and yet there was social reinforcement around her. And I think that applies, as I said, outside athletics. Um, Monica, what do you think, you know, you've worked in the collegiate world. What do you see with that? Uh, Yeah. Um, And I do wanna say
3: for any men listening to this, that I, I think I see, I would say a third of my patients with eating disorders are men. And I don't know, that doesn't quite reflect the statistics, but we are definitely seeing males, more and more men with eating disorders and and more and more male athletes. But I think, and and what Kara has said, is it's normative for disordered eating. It's just, um, sadly, that is what is normalized, what athletes see. I think that, you know, we're all, anyone is at risk for disordered eating when you live in a culture that normalizes disordered eating and also normalizes kind of an obsession with weight. And I still see very often that the focus is not on performance and it can easily become a focus on weight. And so when athletes hear that, they lose sight of why why they're there and they can get very caught up in trying to manipulate what their body looks like and that becomes what the vehicle what they weigh is what's going to help them perform and so i think that the our culture in general it's going to be tough to change the culture <laughs> but i think the sports culture educating people who are talking to athletes can be very very helpful in just the nuances of of what we say in terms of keeping the focus on performance and looking at how we can, can get away from keeping it on appearance.
2: Can I add something to that? So um, one of the things that happened to me, and this is really common, is I lost, you know, I, I was pretty restrictive my freshman year in the sport and then I lost weight and I started to perform really well. Um, but of course I didn't know anything about reds or what was going to be happening in the long term, right? So I I'm had to
0: you one questions. second. Let's can you oh. please define reds? Yeah. Or does
2: Monica want to?
0: <laughs> so sure.
3: So it's relative energy deficiency in sport. And it was kind of an outcome of um, the International Olympic Committee came up with this definition because the definition of female athlete triad was excluding men. Obviously the female athlete triad and, and REDS has components of that, but female athlete triad includes low energy availability, which can either be intentional or unintentional. And so Susan, the, the person you were talking about that so many people can have low energy availability where you have too much energy going out and not enough energy coming in your food. That's the first component. And then the second component is amenorrhea or loss of periods. And the third component is bone loss. So you can have both the low energy availability and bone loss in men, but obviously the, the lack of menses was an exclusion. So um, the relative energy deficiency in sport describes that low energy availability where you don't have enough energy to support all the activity and exercise that you're doing. And it also encompasses the psychological and other physiological consequences of restriction. And so- um, which like,
2: there are many. <laughs> of
3: which there are many. And so mm-hmm. there's, I, I don't know if we have time to go into them, but just hematological and immunological um, depression, emotional, so um, yeah, I don't know why-, why Right. Yeah. So, yeah,
2: what I, so basically what I was saying is but the, the short-term of effect of my restriction, um, that combination led to me running really, really fast and, um, and being actually going to one of the top performers of my team. And so, um, and then, of course, what ended up happening, which happens for a lot of runners, then my body couldn't handle it anymore. And um, my, bar, my body started to break down. I actually started binging and my performance then you know, declined. But because I had that experience of my body weight lowering and and, peak, or, and high performance, when you when an athlete has that it, like felt body experience, it's really hard to then take head knowledge and say, um, and, and not make that connection. Um, and so I think that's where again prevention and information is so key for athletes early on in their competitive career. Around like if I had been told I'll have short-term success, but in the long term. It's not going to work. I'm, I, I think I would have been really um, compelled by that information because my drive was so high to perform, and so I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have been like, "Great, I'll just do one really fast season and be done with my career," you know, or like not perform as well. And so um, I, I'm, I think I was one of those candidates that, if I had good, um, solid information early on, I don't know if I would have gone down that path.
0: And I think that it's classic and um, that experience. And so Keenan sort of that I think the coaches see that as well right they see the weight loss and this burst of of great performance and then might get locked into that um, as the conceptual framework for success and so um, you had actually you know um, presented this question and it is such a good question in light of data tracking and gathering so much information on our athletes every day, especially at the elite level, how is fueling and energy deficits like this falling through the, the cracks? Like, what do you think from the coach's perspective? Because it's the coach that's there day in and day out.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I'll just say, like, um, what we're doing right here is is why it's falling through the cracks. I, I, I mean, I don't know if – I'm just taking tons of notes. I'm learning – learning things that i'm not aware of and like shame on me like here i'm tasked with working with um some of the world's very very best athletes and and this is not i mean this is not my world right like that's why i I seek out people like you dr kleiner where like i can do a lot of things at a high level but you need help right so i would say things like this where we're just bringing um public knowledge and um so so i'll kind of touch on that right you guys We're talking about, uh, one, it's hard to detect someone that has disordered eating. And so I brought that up because we can track people's sleep now. We can track uh, acute to chronic workload ratios. We can track force velocity profile, all these kind of catchy terms in the human performance world. And so we talked about, uh, you guys talked about uh, low energy availability, amenorrhea, and, and bone loss. You can track those things too, but it's not, it's not fancy one, right? Like, but come on, we can make graphs and that that's what people like, right? These, these awesome graphs, right? We can do that. So cool. Let's get on with it. Um, Amen or right? Like um, I'm the odd, odd person here. One, I don't, I don't have a nutrition background and I'm, I'm the dude on this panel. Right. Um, and I, I know like early on and still kind of to this day, if a, if a, if a, if a female came up to me and said, one, if she had the vulnerability and the comfortability to come to me, a guy and say like, Hey, I haven't, I haven't had my period in six months. Like, boom, that, that, like that's a, that's, that can, that can elevate a performance. Like she's, she's, you know, she's hitting a a trough, no doubt, but like when she's comfortable to bring that to the table and I I don't know if the three of you guys are familiar, but um, our, our fantastic U S women's national soccer team that was awesome this summer. They talked about this, art, this um, fitter woman app that they used to manage their, like, menstrual cycles. And it, it impacted the way they ate. It impacted the way they slept. It impacted the way they trained. It impacted all these things. And, and to me, it, it should have, like, spread, like, across, across our country in all sports. Like, wow, there's, like, it's an app, which our genera- like, the generation of athletes love apps, stuff that's on their phone. And to me, like that, that's like a huge conversation starter, and I, I, it got some recognition in the in the in the press. But I think it needs to get more, right? Because we need to have the ability to have those those conversations. Because it's it, it's a whatever, it's a, a taboo topic. But I think it needs to happen more. So so we can track that now. So that would help with the amenorrhea and bone loss. Um, is there a standard at the at the NC2A level? Is there a standard at the International Olympic level of, of that's part of the PPE? That's part of the physical exam where they come in and, and they they use DEXA scan or whatever whatever the industry standard is. So we can start with a baseline so that when a stress reaction occurs or uh, performance deficits occur, we're not Speculating on on uh, normative data between just females 18 to 22 or female runners 18 to 22, it's specific to this particular athlete. Would the NC2A uh, as, as an organization support funding if if an NC2A institution itself cannot uh, can, can if it cannot purchase or afford um, whatever it would be? I don't know. You guys could talk about what you feel like is the industry standard of of. Uh, tracking and managing bone loss so I, I just think <clears throat> um, if we're really if we're really trying to be the NC2A right now says it's the health and well-being of, of the student-athlete right that's their kind of mantra right now uh, are they really doing that are they providing the educational resources are they providing experts to 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 have these guidelines of, of how we can track and manage these things uh, throughout an athlete's career
3: well I can I speak to that because right, I think you're you're just bringing up such a huge problem, even in the NCAA level, is that seven percent of the last statistic I saw is that seven percent of Division One NCAA programs have a full-time dietitian. So even if they're uh, full-time, there's a That's lot of crazy, right? like yeah, crazy.
1: But, come on, like. Yeah, this is like we're just going through the, the like we call it whatever Black Monday in the college football world where they're having all these buyouts of all these coaches and their support staff, like their coaching staffs, like thousands and thousands. Of, and I bet you if we ran the numbers, really? millions of dollars for another person to go four and six. Right. Like the deal is like, let's let's get real. Right. Like yeah. Alabama's going to be good for a long time. So when <laughs> other teams fire coaches and their staffs and seven percent, they could impact. Every athlete in the Indians. yeah, anyways, I'm sorry. Oh, I like
2: that. Fire 100%. up.
1: Percent is – that's crazy. That's, like – Yeah,
2: that is. It's
1: negligible.
2: And that's way better than it was.
1: It's, yeah, to me it's just, like, negligible. When I was an athlete. <laughs>
3: So, and even when I was at the University of Washington, and it's always, it's fun to grow a program, which is what the sports dietitians and I did, who came before the full-time dietitians now, now they have two full-time RDs. It started out as five hours a week. And Mm -hmm. by the time I was done there, it was 30 hours a week. But I was seeing over 700 athletes by myself. So even if we were screening for everything, it's, I mean, I would, anyone with an eating disorder would come to see me. And our, they'd often say, we don't have that many eating disorders here. And I was like, we do. We're just not finding them. And I think for the PPEs, a, a more cost-effective way to do it is you can just screen for stress fracture history and also look at calcium intake and and just, they could come see the dietitian if there is one and just look at their daily energy intake. But the DEXA scan won't always show bone loss, even in someone who is restricting. And so I think that that's something they'll do later down the road, but they could certainly get um, stress fracture history. It's also an issue of accurate reporting because I think some athletes don't want to disclose that. But um, yeah, I think a big problem lies with a lot of times, it's getting better, but a lot of times when someone does hire a dietitian, even as a consultant, it's, what I've seen is it can be more of a checkbox then knowing how to use that resource, and mm-hmm. so I know there's actually a position paper coming out for the standards of practice at the NCAA level in in dietetics. So that will be a nice um, paper to reference. But well, and then
2: and then you, you have there's um, kind of the tracking, the getting the education out there, having support in that way which can help a lot of athletes just from lack of knowledge but then there's so many people like me who it's complicated psychologically from a mental health standpoint where that information can be actually misused and um and it's so much more nuanced and there's an art to it where the science kind of doesn't um quite lend to the change and so then there's there's the, a whole slew of athletes where that's that's um that's it's not going to be enough
1: Yes, yeah, so it's right. It's creating a, a truly integrated uh, performance team that the athletes trust and know they have the best interest of the athlete in mind, right? So they're not uh, a performance staff created by the head coach right. to spit out champions, right? It's just a performance team that helps the athlete and helps the coach because you guys are kind of touching on what, what what's going to happen, right, or what does happen. The, real, the real, reality of it is. So there's no one um, with the skill set to support the athlete's wishes to understand fueling. Right? They, may, they, may, they, they probably all have some level of disordered eating just because they have to pick up their information from social media. They have to pick up their information from what they've heard. And they're going to seek out someone that classifies or identifies themselves as a uh, you know, sports performance nutritionist or dietitian. Although they're not a registered dietitian, right, or mm-hmm. or uh, they don't even have the the academic background, level licensure to to make these recommendations, they're just someone that's fit by God's graces and understands, you know, pharmaceuticals and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Then number two, then they start to fall down the slippery stroke of having the psychological impact where, like, I think I'm eating right, uh, you know, I'm following everything, I'm, you know. Um, intermittent fasting, I'm doing all these catchy things, but like I'm still putting on weight and and coach knows it because coach is having me do supplemental cardio or coach Mm -hmm. is having me do this and coach looks at me when we're on team trips and eating. And again, they can't find like the mental health person that can can facilitate that because again, they go out and they find life coaches. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so it's just this like slippery stroke. So I'm really excited for this position paper to come out. Again, I'll keep coming back and saying like, this, this right here, like how this gets out and, and coaches, parents, athletes, everybody can, can get access to it. It's really going to drive the needle, I think, in a positive direction of saying like, hey, there's major gaps of, of just providing the resources to support these people. And
2: as an athlete, you have, say you even have a good team, you have a good therapist, you have a good dietitian, um, strength and condition, like you have this performance team. But then if your coach is giving you another message that's not aligned, the coach often takes kind of is, is in the biggest position of power in the athlete's mind because that's really who um the athlete is trying to, to please. So even if I mean that can be a struggle too. So if the coach isn't aligned, whether in their words or in their own modeling, um that that creates a tension for the athlete too. Cayman, um let's
0: say that there is uh, either parents watching this, uh, and, or listening in and, um, and, and a coach, um, and, and they would like to sort of elevate, not just their own knowledge, but, but a coach says, okay, I want to create an environment where, um, an athlete can feel safe or it it, disclosing questions about themselves or that, all of the professionals that are part of my high performance team are safe to speak to, right? So if a coach, if a coach listens and recognizes this is a real problem, I'd like to change the culture of my staff and um, what, what kinds of things could a coach do um, to, to help with that sort of food, Body relationship of the athletes and the 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 staff, as well as what should a what do you think a parent should look for when their child, whether they're high school, college, or beyond, um, is is joining some kind of a team. What 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 signals do you think would be important both as I said for the parent to look for but also really importantly how does a coach change the culture of the staff
1: yeah so I'm going to answer it and this is just just my opinion so I I, again it's it's not a it's not a gold medal template but here's how I would say well first like I think you hit it right like it should start with the parent right like our kids should be talking to us, the parents. Like we will always, well, in most cases, at least for the, I think for everybody on this conversation, we always have our children's best interest at mind, right? And so I think it's, if you're dealing with a high school kid or even a college kid, you shouldn't pursue necessarily at first the the person with the title of registered dietitian for, you know, the greatest athlete of all time. You just want to bring somebody in with an educational foundation that, That it's just going to teach simple, like, no pun intended, like a low-hanging fruit of timing, quality, quantity to this young, moldable mind. um, And then communicate with you, with the parent, of just saying, hey, like, are you aware that uh, your daughter or your son is ashamed uh, on team trips to, you know, to have a a dessert while the rest of the team is having it? Or your son is ashamed because he's super hungry and, you know, he's going to have – um three plates of food while his his contemporaries are only having one or two and like this makes him like having that open conversation so i think it always should start with the parents and the parents just seeking out someone one that has the credentialing so they're able to actually do this legally right and then uh a number two that, that it's like a it's a the professional the child and the parent having a conversation and then that would lead into the coach and i think um, great coaches and and I've had the opportunity to work with with a couple great coaches is, is checking the ego at the door you know they they'll, they'll train they'll train the athlete and that's that's where it ends and then they're gonna say like I'm gonna hopefully seek out or be able to align myself with you know with, with the best strength coach with the best dietitian that, that we can find um, and just give me the information like if I'm doing it wrong give me the information because at the end of the day like I do want to give the opportunity to I do want to have the opportunity to, to give this kid a shot to, to make the Olympic team or whatever you're going to have. Um, and I, and I, so I think that's, that's really, really important. And then uh, on, on the flip side, the, the performance team, so whatever your, your world is, so whether it be the dietitian or the sports medicine staff, whatever is, 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 is allow the coach to provide the information that they can be the, the, the turning point or the tipping point, right? Like we're training at, at 5. AM, then we come back and we train at 3 p.m and and so like if you have an idea of what their schedule is and, and the amount of volume that's going into it like those those are like the huge because it may not be the, the the sporting activity which is causing this um, this nutritional problem right maybe it's like they're at a student at University of Washington or you know University of Virginia so they're up till 3 a.m studying because they know in four years like they're not gonna make millions of dollars in the MBA they're gonna be millionaires as a lawyer or something, right? So uh, I think uh, not pointing fingers and just trying to bring everything into the fold and, and so that you're doing right by the athlete.
0: I had, uh, you know, my personal experiences with, with great coaches have been exactly that, where it was a conversation. They would pull me in and say, tell me your thoughts on this athlete. Um, what would you suggest what are you know what does your expertise tell you and i think even the fact that you know that it's the referring to the expert and pulling in the expert that's critically important and um and that the expert or the the professional whether it's the mental health professional the registered dietitian um hopefully they can um can have the conversation with the coach in a way that, that doesn't put the coach off either. Mm -hmm. Right. That, that doesn't, that isn't well, you don't know what you're talking about. And, Mm -hmm. and that kind of leads us into this question of performance versus body weight and the confusion that starts to happen uh, when we're, when, Really, in the end, everyone's goal is performance, but it gets lost in this body weight confusion, and and so Monica, um, you know, I know that's a big part of of what you talk about. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the missing parts of the conversation, whether it's social media, or 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 even within the athletic world, even in the average individual who wants to be. They say, I'm here in your office for health and fitness, mm-hmm. and, and yet the next sentence is weight loss. And so <laughs> talk to me, about, talk to us about that. <laughs> if I had a penny for every time
3: someone said, I wanna, I wanna get healthier and I need to lose weight. And so that's usually how the conversation starts if, if someone's just coming in to increase their health. Maybe they've been diagnosed with high cholesterol, or they want to increase their performance and they don't have an eating disorder. So um, usually the, what I will say to that is that I do not focus on weight. And I I don't even, um, in, unless we're uh, looking for things like, um, oh, it cut out. Oh, okay. Uh-oh, can you hear me? I it think yeah. it's on, okay. Oh, I might need to kill my camera, is what it says. Um, Let me know if it it doesn't get better. But um, I will just tell people, let's focus on your performance. And I I really don't spend a lot of time on weight. And if there are habits or behaviors that are not helping with performance, then... We can change those. See how you're feeling. See if your immune system improves. I want to focus on: Are you feeling well? Are you getting sick less often? Are you experiencing those training adaptations? Are, how's your mood? Are you sleeping? So focusing on all of those things and really helping them feel. You know, is, are your energy levels better? If they lose weight, then they're probably in the higher end of their set point range. But if that's never the goal. If they don't lose weight, then they're probably in what is genetically what they're predisposed to. And so helping them understand that when you make that the goal, that's where you can't focus on performance because you can't part of just learning to have a healthy relationship with food is learning to tune in to your hunger and your fullness and even what you like, experimenting and being curious about do I like this food or Do I want something salty or sweet or savory? Am I eating these foods because I've been told I have to eat them? Am I not choosing to recover after exercise because I didn't like my weight on the scale this morning? So I think that that's where if if coaches in general and teams can do a better job of just having weight neutral conversations, then athletes can feel safe bringing up you know, issues about weight or if they've lost their period or
0: anything. I think describe, what, um, describe, Monica, describe when you say weight neutral conversations. Well, you are, you're, you're freezing up here. Oh, there you are. <laughs> um, okay. uh, what is, okay. what is the language around a weight neutral conversation? Could you hear me? Yeah. Yeah.
3: So I think the language is just even saying that we're focusing on how you feel and just using words that have nothing to do with what you look like, what you weigh, what your body fat percentage is, just focusing on what are your energy levels and talking about all the benefits of eating a balanced, just having mindful eating and also exercising in moderation. Like, what does exercise give us that has nothing to do with what we look like? And just getting, people have never had that conversation. A lot of times they don't, they don't know because they've always had their health associated with what their weight is. Mm-hmm. So I think um, the other piece of it is recognizing that if someone is living in a larger body, which is larger than what we all have, if, you know, there's, there's obesity, which is a certain amount of body fat, and a certain amount of we, per, per BMI standards, which we talk about, I always say that that stands for bull crap made important, and so <laughs> we, we've got this arbitrary standard, which our society says that if someone lives in this BMI, then we can focus on weight loss with them, we can tell them that weight loss is okay, but if someone's in a lower BMI, we can't. And what we need to accept is that there is body diversity and that a lot of times we cannot change in either direction without extreme behaviors from our set point range. So we cannot continue to prescribe for one set of the population because they have one body the very same behaviors that we call an eating disorder in someone who's in Quote normal BMI weight range, and so until we can accept that and stop marketing one way to someone who lives in a larger body, that uh, okay, you're you're obese, you're fat. So and I think fat can be like fat does not have to be a negative word. I think even weight neutral fat is a thing. So if we have more fat, some people have more fat, some people have less fat, but not stigmatizing it and making it such. Um, a loaded word so if someone is fat not blaming their body or saying okay therefore because you're fat we need to work on these weight loss goals and here's x y and z of how to get there that individual needs to focus on learn to focus on the benefits of, of exercise and even be asked are you exercising a lot of people assume that if someone is in a higher bmi that they're not exercising or they're not eating in in balance and they may very well be so I think separating terms like um, just separating health from from what we weigh because someone can be in a smaller body and have high cholesterol someone can be in a larger body and be the most internally fit person that I've met so I think that's another word that I kind of use is internal fitness as opposed to external fitness and that's, those are, I don't know if that's helpful, but those are some of the, the words that, that I'll try to keep people more focused on. Mm-hmm. So I'll joke with patients that there are certain words not allowed in my office. <laughs> so, um, what are those words? Um, just I'm fat or like, I look pregnant or, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, um, my dad bod, my, I, like just, uh, like just um, even stigmatizing having, language. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, and I think that we we often say this. It's the last um, acceptable form of discrimination. That you know we we do not discriminate against any other group, but you can have someone who you could have one of my patients who it took months to get them to go to the gym or to go to an exercise class because they're ashamed of their body and they don't want to be seen. So ironically, the very thing that's keeping them from experiencing health and a healthier relationship with body and exercise and food is that they they don't feel safe going somewhere where they're gonna hear the instructor at the gym say, Okay, you know, we need to burn X amount in this class. If you work harder then you'll you won't be fat, but basically you could say you won't look like that person in the back of the room. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's where I think the conversation has to start is is all bodies are different and we can't prescribe that one set of behaviors for one body versus another.
0: So I um, guess in the yeah. a sort of in summary, it's, it is, you know, we, we talk about the shifting of the conversation from appearance to performance, which is always where I am as a sports nutritionist, certainly, and it's very interesting to have athletes come in to the office who have, their, their performance has declined, right? They, um, they started out doing really well and somewhere along the line, they got this idea that if they started to restrict their diet, their performance would increase. It's, it is kind of, this is the, the story. So they were doing well, they decrease their food intake for a short period of time they and it's classic this enhanced performance because the power to weight ratio changes and they still have all their reserves from where they started um their performance then declines and they start to restrict more and their performance continues to decline and they restrict even more and so shifting the conversation back to, well, what were you doing when you performed, you know, at your best when you started all of this? And so it's that conversation that, so um, sort of, I guess, for all of you and Keenan and, and Kara too as well, shifting the focus from body weight back to performance. I, I think that is kind of the the summary <laughs> Of all of this to, to, to send that message home that that it's about performance, whether it's your body's performance with health, your body's performance in fitness, your body's performance mentally, physically, sleep, all those things, as well as physical performance of, of a sport. Kara, uh, you know, just the, the language um, for anyone working with athletes from the coach to the parent. And everybody
2: in between. Yeah, I, one of the things I want to say that relates to that and your question about what can a coach do. Um, and kind of what's Monica has been speaking to is I really think the coach does need to reevaluate and look at their own weight bias and their own beliefs around weight and performance nutrition and performance mental health and performance and really examine and do their own self work around that because um, if they do just hand off to the professionals um, that does a disservice to the athletes because there there is a place that their role ends and the professional work begins. But if you're not communicating about that, the athlete can feel that and silence around the topic can be really harmful um, for an athlete. So I think it's really important for a coach to do their own work around that um, we're doing a coaches clinic here in Seattle on January 11th. And it's, there's, you know, 95 people, I think, registered right now, and it's, it's really helping the coach examine um, this very thing around what they, what they, their own biases that they have, and then how do they grow their understanding and awareness around this, these issues. Um, so I think that is a, is a significant piece of shifting the culture, is for coaches to be examining that themselves. Um, and then, of course, uh, finding, you know, their, their team and their people to work with, with athletes. Um so and now I'm 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 not sure if I just totally took us off track, but I, I was holding oh, that's, well, <laughs> related I like to that's something a, that Monica said. Because yeah, weight it, bias is a big weight bias is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it shows it's up big, in yeah. sport. Yeah. And then psychologically, like an athlete, if a coach like Mary Kane talked about this, if if a coach puts a lot of emphasis on race, weight or a weight to perform well then an athlete, like she said, she's, she came to the starting line already failing because her coach didn't believe in her. And so the placebo effect, there's a psychological effect where someone can perform poorly because they don't believe in themselves and they don't believe the coach believes in them. And it's not really the weight, the quote unquote, extra few pounds that really decline the performance. It's their own psychology and their belief um, in their ability to do so.
0: I want to, I want to, we're, we're coming to the end, but I have one more big question and that is what is the role that the scale plays with an athlete?
1: I can just, I mean, I I don't know Like from the, from the experts side, I'll let them answer from, from mine. I, I, um, I'm just writing down some, some big rock things that you guys have discussed that have been awesome and, and, We, so we we kind of were hearing that Mary Kane had a coach that said, you know, whatever, we'll just throw out an arbitrary number. 150 pounds equals victory, right? Like that's, that's like just throwing some arbitrary, like, that'd be like me saying uh, squatting 400 pounds equals victory or um, massage right before race equals victory. This is arbitrary, like that there's so many things that like go in. So I would say instead just like those all three examples that that flow into performance, the scale for us would just be, it's just like a a navigational guide, right? And I'm sure you guys could touch on it. There's like ranges, right? So, um, and and I don't know what that is, plus or minus five to seven pounds. Like you're still in your range for success, right? Um, And so I think that's that's how I would use it more because there are still coaches, right? I think it's generational that – you know, still have this scale on the pool deck or in their weight room and they think oh like they want to weigh the kid right after they have their first great performance right so they know that like, that's that's got to be it that's got to be it. and it's like Come on. no like it just happened right there's lots of training and the kid just got on the block jumped in the water was feeling good and boom the performance happened not that so um, I would just say like, yeah, the scale is just another one of our kind of touch points of the navigational guide or the roadmap, the blueprint for, for success. It's not, um, it's not an absolute.
2: I would add about the scale. There's such individual differences between people about how they relate to a scale. So I think there's, there's some athletes It went, I mean, I, it's a slippery slope because I think if you're using weight as one of the data points for, for the overall, performance um, picture, you're, you're starting to mess with potentially kind of the eating disorder psycho- psychopathology. Um, potentially. Some people can handle that kind of data um, and be fine with it and can use it responsibly, um, especially if they've had um, some work around this with, with, uh, with professionals. Um, but then there's a lot of people that I don't think would use that information well and or start to get obsessive um, I was thinking about temperamentally, a lot of our high-performing athletes are have a, what we call a more over-controlled temperament. Um, and so you can really fall into more rigidity and perfectionism and compulsiveness when it comes to numbers. And that is numbers like um, food numbers, calories, you know, they can use any kind of numbers, training numbers, weight numbers. And so really to know how the athlete is using that information and what they're doing with that information um, if they're just using it and more neutrally like like Monica's talking about that's then that could maybe be fine as well, if they can kind of hold it in context of everything else but oftentimes it becomes larger than life like I remember even for me as an athlete I'd weigh myself every day and it determined the mood for the rest of the day how I showed up to food um, and it was a total preoccupation probably 95 percent of the thoughts of the day was related around weight and food Um And so obviously it was a very destructive relationship I had with it now. Now in my recovery, I don't, I go to the doc. I basically get weighed every year when I go to the doctor and it it doesn't hold power um, because of the work I've done. But I mean, for a lot of these, these folks, it holds way too much power. That's, you
0: know, I just think such a, a good synopsis. Um, the, you know, and then the the other side of this, uh, you know, we're talking a lot about restricting, but there's also, you know, for another podcast, is is the is the need to really eat a huge amount, right? For for many athletes, and the you know the weight maintenance of, of one of Kenan's swimmers, female swimmers, her weight maintenance maybe three thousand to thirty five hundred calories a day just to maintain. Um, we, you know, I work with, uh, I I have been called in to work with NFL quarterbacks who were getting hurt because they didn't have enough meat on their bones and to maintain their body weight, it was 5,000 calories a day. And we had to increase it to get them to gain. And, and there is the issue of hard gainers. When we talk about athletes that how difficult it is for them and the, the, um, sort of that, they're, they're way off in the corners as well, right? Mm -hmm. How can I talk about my body's too small, I want to get it bigger Mm -hmm. when the whole rest of the world is talking about that everybody Mm -hmm. needs to to lose weight. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's so many conversations, especially if we think of, of the, the male equation of all of this. So Mm -hmm. I, um, I, 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 those are for other topics, we're really at the end, I can't Mm -hmm. Thank you all enough um, for, for having participated today. You are, you, you're, you're gonna make a difference here and you make a difference with everyone you touch every day. So on behalf of Paul Nobles and Eat to Perform, I hope that all of you out there listening have enjoyed this, take it to heart, listen to snippets over and over again. There's so much valuable information and conversation here. And then follow and look for the information from each of these experts, Keenan, Monica, and Kara, um, in their worlds, in their individual worlds as well. So, so again, uh, I so appreciate all of you and um, have a wonderful holiday season and a very successful and, and happy new year.